Let's get started with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. I thank you for everyone here. God, your word is amazing, and I pray that everyone in this room will see greater and greater through your word, your riches, your majesty, your your worth, your value, your might, your strength, and your power, and that we would all worship you better together as a church body that we would build each other up in love, that we would pray for Pastor Chance, Pastor Jesse, each one of the elders that lead. Pray for all of our deacons that are serving here in this church. We pray for everyone that is acting like a deacon and also acting like a pastor by serving and leading with the gifts that you've supplied for us through your spirit to serve this body, to serve the church, and to serve your purpose to proclaim your word to the nations and to tell men that they are sinful and they are in great need of a Savior and that they're in danger of the wrath to come and that you've provided a propitiation, an appeasement of your wrath through Jesus Christ. They will put their faith in him and come and follow him and obey him. Lord, help us all to see how great you are. Lord, help me to to open up this passage, to answer questions, and to be helpful to your people. We pray this, Lord, for your glory, for your honor, and for your kingdom, so that you may be praised. Amen. Romans 10, 5 through 10. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. And here's the contrast. Moses says, the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law. So the righteousness which is through obedience to the law, doing the law, keeping the law, practicing, keeping God's laws, God's ways. You do all the things you're supposed to do, and you don't do all the things you're not supposed to do. So there's, there's things you're supposed to do, rightly. And there's things you're not supposed to do. A lot of people just think that it's all things you're not supposed to do. But as Paul talked about in Romans 1, 18 through 32, we have a list of all these negative sins. And then the last sentence is three positive commands that you're supposed to do. And Paul actually says, you're not as loving as you should be. And so there's positive things and not as compassionate as you should be. And that's one of the things Jesus confronts the Pharisees about, that they don't have love, they don't have compassion, they're not like God, even though they've set themselves up to be teachers of God to the people. And so he's setting up the contrast between a righteousness which is based on law, <laughs> you shall live by that righteousness, but... So here's the contrast. The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. But I want to first deal with verse 5. Actually, most of today is dealing with verse 5. <laughs> so let's, let's get into it here. I have a whole list of scriptures here that are dealing with verse 5 in a way. Paul sets up a contrast between the righteousness which comes through human effort to obey God's law to keep all of God's word in perfect obedience versus a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in him. 
and God's promise in the gospel, which the law itself and the prophets both spoke of. The law and the prophets actually speak of a righteousness through faith. And so those who are saying that they can keep the law aren't understanding that in the, the thing that they're trying to keep, it also speaks of a righteousness through faith. And so I think they got too narrow in their perspective, the people who believe they can actually do this. Specifically, as we learn in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, the Jews who would not believe in Jesus. At that time, their theological system showed very much that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus says that specifically in the Gospels. He told parables and stories to guys, it says, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated other people with contempt. They looked down on other sinners and they thought that they were better than them. So this is almost like repeating what we've been talking about. You guys know how that this theme repeats itself in the Bible constantly? So it's a big theme. It's, it's the major theme. It's the theme you're never supposed to truly get off of. The gospel isn't the entrance into the Christian life. And then you move on to other things to uh, make yourself more beautiful or better, better, a better life, a better you, and more wealth or more wisdom and money practices. And God's going to bless me with all this and this. The gospel is the beauty of Jesus Christ himself. And what do you want in heaven? Do you want to be near God? Or do you want to be in some palace off by yourself, dancing on your own gold? To be in heaven, your heart should desire heaven because Jesus Christ is there and you want to lay at his feet. Your heart's desire as a Christian should go toward Christ always, not the things and the benefits. <coughs> Not the things and the benefits. Those are secondary. That shouldn't be what your heart's on. If it is, probably a little crooked and need to get a different view and esteem Christ in a greater way. So the Jews, they failed to see themselves honestly, many of them, and to see that the law was an impossible task to actually do without stain, without blemish, to actually do it perfectly. So did the law and the prophets promise life for those who kept it? We'll look at some of our scriptures. First scripture is Galatians 3. So something from the New Testament on Paul talk, talking about what he says about the law. Galatians 3, verse 10 and 11 say this. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So right there, it, it doesn't sound very good to be after, under, for the law. You're under a curse because the law curses you. And if you're trying to keep the law, you're under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. And so it's foolish to believe that you can do 99% of the law and think that you've made it. Man, I am so I am so close. I'm so good. I have to be accepted. Would maybe be something that you would reason in your heart or somebody else. God's got to accept me. Look at look at all the good I've done for him. Paul says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law 
to perform them. So not an E for effort, like an art class. It's not art class with God. He's not like, oh, yeah, that's real close. That's good enough. I'll let you in. That's not what's going on here. <clears throat> you have to do everything that's written in the book of the law to perform them. And so Paul says in verse 11, Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. It's evident. Who do you think that it would be self-evident? But self deceives self all the time. And so he, he right there he says, no one is justified by the law. And then he, he, does, he does a quote, why? For the righteous man shall live by faith. Just like we read in Romans 1, verses 15, 16, and 17. The righteous man shall live by faith. That's the gospel. The faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 21 says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So another scripture that shows that Everyone is sinful. Everyone is sinning. Everyone has erred. You can read Isaiah 53. All the people that the uh, sacrificial lamb comes and dies for has gone astray, is bent, is crooked, has gone away from God. James says this in James chapter 2. Whoever keeps the whole law, similar to Galatians 3.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. So what does uh, the Old Testament actually say? And something that comes from the writings of Moses. Leviticus 18 says this, verse 5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. If he does them. I am the Lord. Ezekiel says this, so one of the prophets, much later time, Ezekiel 20, verse 11. God says this, I gave them, the, the Israelites, my statutes, and I informed them of my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. And uh, God repeats himself three times that same statement in Ezekiel chapter 20. So he's emphasizing that reality. If a man observes them, he will live. But if you read the rest of Ezekiel and the other prophets, you'll see that God's very angry with the Israelites for their sinfulness. Romans 7, which we just covered a few months ago, Paul says this, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. So Paul is talking about how the commandment, when it comes, the sin that's inside me, and we'll see this as he summarizes this, the sin that's inside me became alive. When I was confronted with do not covet, my heart, which is sinful, it's like, I can't stand this command. I've got to covet. And the sin, he went after coveting other people's goods or wives, possibly. We don't know. Coveting in some way. <laughs> this commandment, which was to result in life, the commandment was 
It, it did have a promise of life to it, but it proved to result in death for me. And verse 11 is very key. For sin. So sin is the subject here. Sin, taking an opportunity through the good commandment, deceived me. And through it, through the commandment, killed me. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good, God's commands and his laws, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. It's not the law's fault. Rather, once again, here's the subject, it was sin. Sin that became alive in me. Sin that was in me. It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, which is God's laws and his commands. So that through the commandment, sin will become utterly sinful. And so another way that Paul says that, I believe, in Galatians is, the law came to show us our sinfulness. The law came to show us how much we are ready to transgress God. To show us how sinful our hearts are. If God says, don't step here, guess what? Like a little child that wants to disobey their mommy or daddy, I'm going to jump right there. I'm going to stomp it up right there. And so that's a purpose of the law, is to show how rebellious our hearts are against God and how we we reject him constantly and we stray from him and we do not want to obey him as master and Lord. <clears throat> Romans 5 says this, 19, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So getting to the origins of why all men are sinful and born sinful is through Adam. <clears throat> we were all made sinners and sin is what we do. Because that's what we are. <clears throat> John 8, Jesus says this, verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. So this is true. <laughs> really true. <laughs> I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So it's not just... Oh, hey, I sinned once. No big deal. What does Jesus say? If you commit sin once, the reality is, the truth, <coughs> truly, truly, you're a slave of sin. You serve sin. You serve self. And you're not serving God. Even just once. It, it proves that you're a slave of sin that you're not a slave of righteousness and that you're not like God, that you've erred from his character and his ways. Other passages in the Old Testament, such as Isaiah 6, 1 through 6, Isaiah's great throne room vision of the holiness of God, something the late minister R.C. Sproul loves. His ministry is founded on this passage, essentially. But it's foundational. It's an awesome Old Testament passage. This is... The entrance theme of the gospel. You need to understand how sinful you are and how holy God is. You need to have a great, grand vision of God's holiness and how sinful you are. And Isaiah, the prophet of the people of Israel, who was given this vision, it says he laid down, prostrated himself before God because he couldn't stand in God's holiness. 
And what is the thing he confessed immediately? It says, I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell, and my eyes have seen the king. We're all doomed. We're all doomed. That's, that's the vision everyone needs to have before God. The thief on the cross, I believe, showed great humility before Jesus right at the end. Lord, remember me when you, I, I believe it was a, a sincere, humble request, recognizing sinfulness and I don't deserve God or the kingdom or to be in heaven. I'm just going to ask for it, looking for mercy. And so it is with everyone in the Old Testament and New Testament. They are humble before God. They know that they're not a good person and they're not supposed to develop an attitude of pride or arrogance toward other people that are sinners as well. And they're supposed to be humble before God. Even Job in chapter 42, 1 through 6, when he has his vision of God, says he repents in dust and ashes. And so two venerated men in the Jewish people's history, Isaiah and Job, they had these humiliating experiences before God. And to think that they were somehow inherently different than these men, that they could achieve righteousness on their own, is not consistent with what their own scriptures actually reveal. And so it was inconsistent to develop a one-sided theology, if you will, that was like, I can actually keep the law perfectly. And you know what? I actually think I have. And God, you know what? I'm snooty and I'm prideful now. And I treat other peoples with contempt and I trust in myself. These men in the Old Testament that are writing the scriptures did not think that about themselves. So why would their descendants, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and many of the Israelites who followed them, believe those things? That's because men's hearts are sinful. One of my favorite passages, Deuteronomy 9. This is what God says concerning the Israelite nation. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord God has driven them out, the Canaanites, before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into this land to possess it. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess this promised land. Okay, it's the same thing for Christians who are going to possess heaven one day. Do not say in your heart, I am getting heaven because of my uprightness. Okay, it's the same theme. It is not because of your righteousness or uprightness of heart that you are going to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's not because of your righteousness. It's because of God's own promise to give people something they don't deserve. God came to Abraham. He confirmed the oath with Isaac, and he confirmed it with Jacob. I am going to be gracious to you guys. So it's based on God's grace. It's based on his own character and his choice to grant a promise. To be kind to people and to give them something special they do not deserve. Verse 6 says this. Finally, I'm concluding again here. 
Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess it, for you are a stubborn people. The Israelites were full of sin and were constantly ready to rebel against God and turn astray from him and his ways. And unfortunately, it is also often the case with Christians. Not often. We still have remaining sin, as Paul talked about in Romans 7, that besets our flesh and wars against the spirit that's making us alive towards God's righteousness and obeying him. There is still a struggle. So there's nothing new here. The people of God in the Old Testament had sin, and they were not given grace or promises based upon their own character and their abilities to obey God or their obedience. It was based upon God's promise to give them something by his own grace. By his own grace. You are a stubborn people. <clears throat> so this is an especially element, important element in teaching the gospel to children and to adults. Showing them the consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament, like in passages like these, that you're sinful. And that the people who call themselves the people of God are still sinful and err and make mistakes and don't love God and love people like they should. Nobody deserves this. Nobody deserves God's promise or the grace of God. It's based to show us that God's grace, his forgiveness, his love and his sacrifice, a redemption and an atonement that can pay for our sins and clear us of the great debt to this holy and righteous judge, our God. We need to show people their sinfulness and show the account of the scriptures, that what the scriptures say is consistent, old and new, about mankind and his sinfulness and his rebellion against God and his ways and his laws. Any Jew or Gentile who rejects Jesus Christ is not of God and is not of the truth. Those Jews who are of God and who have the Father draw them to the Son and teach them about the Son, always come to the Son, believe in Him, and obey. Many Jews to this day that descend from Abraham and are blood-tied, it doesn't matter. Your, your, your lineage, your heritage does not save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ does. Only treasuring Christ, coming to him, believing in him, repenting and obeying him, following him, is what saves you. Those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on them still. John 3.36 Those who do not obey the Son are not of God and are not of the truth. As John would say, the scriptures. To reject Jesus Christ is to reject the only way of salvation, the only means, the only object of salvation. This Abraham did not do. Abraham didn't do that. And Jesus specifically confronts the Pharisees. Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8.
Verse 39 of John chapter 8 says this. They answered Jesus and they said to him, Abraham is our father, Jesus. So they're putting their trust in the reality that they believe that because they descend from Abraham, that they are like him and they're, they're going to inherit what Abraham was promised. But Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. And then he's going to work through this passage, but I want you to skip to verse 56, and we'll see this, what the deed of Abraham looked like and how Jesus explained it. Verse 56 says this, Jesus once again tells him, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And so from verse 39 to verse 56, they're rejecting Jesus. <clears throat> they're rejecting Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, do the deeds of your father Abraham. And now in verse 56, he's saying, you know what the deed of your father Abraham was? Je Abraham actually believed and he rejoiced to see my day. Abraham believed in the promised seed that God promised him, the Messiah. And that belief was what was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And this, these people who are children of Abraham are not the true children of Abraham. They are showing by the rejection of Jesus Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, the Messiah, that they are not of God. And Jesus is showing this. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. A true person of God rejoices to see the Messiah and is glad in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Those who are not of God do not do that. They don't come to Jesus. They don't rejoice and they are not glad in him. Jesus, the promise, was everything to Abraham. And we, who would want to call ourselves Abraham through faith, the father of faith, and we, being children of faith, should do the same deed. We should be rejoicing over Jesus and be glad about him, showing that our hearts truly have received a biblical faith that loves the Lord and has the love of God poured out within your heart, that perseveres, that perseveres. So we, too, should not say in our hearts, self you need to go into every religious exercise possible to get right with God and earn salvation. You have to please God and earn favor with him to gain salvation. You should not say in your heart, self, you need to go with every strength that you possibly possess and find Jesus in heaven or descend or go on some great odyssey or some great adventure or be some monastic crazy monk who does every religious thing like Martin Luther did. <clears throat> If any monk got into heaven, Martin Luther said, it would have been him. <clears throat> it's a funny thing he did and said about himself. He said, if ever a monk were to gain heaven through monkery, it would be I. <laughs> but he discovered justification by faith one day reading in Romans. And his eyes were open to the truth that the just man shall live by faith. It, it's not by monkery and religious exercise and ascetic practices and perfect obedience to anything that God commands you to do. The justification comes by faith in him. 
and that only comes by regeneration of the heart, whereby you trust in God, love and pursue the Messiah, and believe in him. You don't go to Jesus, is what this passage is teaching. God brings Jesus to you. You don't have to go on some crazy exercise. You don't have to find a way to get to heaven yourself. You don't have to go search for him in the deepest, darkest place. Paul used language like this back in Romans 8 as well. Neither height nor depth. And you use these universal ideas and schemes in Romans 8. It says, but the love of God has come to you. Okay, And so this is the same idea. The gospel message comes to you. The word is near to you. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. How do people get saved? It's through the word of faith. They have faith in what God is doing. So God brings salvation to people in a very simple way. Right where you are, geographically. Right where you are spiritually, which is dead in your trespasses and sins. God brings salvation through people who bring a message to believe and repent upon Jesus Christ. Repent of sin and believe upon Jesus Christ. The word of faith which we are preaching. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, so notice the wills. The human will, who will ascend, who will descend, versus what God does and what God wills. Okay? So it's God who brought this salvation to you, and it's God who raised Jesus from the dead. By this you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I believe righteousness and salvation at the bottom here are synonymous terms because of the way Paul introduces this passage. Some, some people might believe that this confession is sanctification. We won't go there today. The word is near. It's really simple. Next week, I want to dive into this term confess and what it means a little more.